Yinka Falati has spent his professional career in the Army at a top Missouri law firm and as the executive director of Forward Through Ferguson. Now the St. Louis Democrat is turning his attention to statewide politics by running for Secretary of State. Falati joins Jacqueline Driscoll and I on the latest episode of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Jefferson City is St. Louis Public Radio State House correspondent, Jacqueline Driscoll. And our special guest today, the Democratic nominee for Secretary of State. Yinka Falati. Thank you so much for joining us. You're actually kicking off an unofficial series on Politically Speaking, where we're going to be interviewing candidates for statewide office. So you're the first one. We're going to reach out to all of the major Democratic and Republican candidates that are running for all the statewide offices this year. This will be a series that will start now in June and probably go until October. I'm going to start things off with a, a, a pretty a pretty softball one for you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, why you're interested in getting in, involved in Missouri politics, and, and anything else that our audience should know about you. Well, Jason, thanks for having me. Uh, Jacqueline, thanks for having me. It's terrific to be on here. I'm a, a, a fan of your show and, and what a terrific uh, job you've done over the last, last many years. Uh, so my name is Yinka Falati. I am the Democratic nominee for Missouri Secretary of State. My name is already on the ballot for November. And so it'll be me uh, versus the incumbent, uh, Jay Ashcroft. But, so I am a, a husband. I am a father of four. We have four, my wife and I have four children from as young as five and a half months old to as, as seasoned as eight years old. And, and so we, we have a full house. It's robust and noisy and boisterous all the time. It's a lot of fun. We're very, very blessed. I am a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. I am an Army veteran of six years plus on active duty, and I'm an attorney by training. Uh, many moons before becoming the Democratic nominee, I immigrated to the United States when I was seven years old. I was born in Lagos, Nigeria, and, and grew up mostly in Florida and Texas, uh, Florida high school and below, Texas high school and above, and, and earned my citizenship as a youth and then earned my appointment to West Point in, in 1994. Graduated West Point in 98 and received my commission as an officer in the Army, specifically on, on in the armor branch. So I served on tanks and in tank units my entire six years plus on active duty. I, uh, I think we all remember this guy named Saddam Hussein, and uh, not a very nice guy. And so we deployed from Fort Hood, Texas to Kuwait in 2001 to keep him at bay. Great mission, uh, came back August of 01, high five, and we'd done our duty, great mission. And then the very next month, our country's attacked on 
So after 9-11, we find ourselves right back in Kuwait and it felt great to defend the country in that time. Fast forward to 2004, I leave the army as a captain and moved to St. Louis to attend uh, law school, Washington University. Our plan was to study for three years at Washington Law, go back in the army and continue serving as an army lawyer. But you know what they say about life? It's uh, life is what happens in between your plans or something like that. And, and that's what happened to me. And so this firm called Brian Cave had other plans for me. So I went to Brian Cave, served as a practice as a litigator there for a few years and really began to miss the, the, the larger than life mission of the army. And, and wanted to get back to service, figured I'd use my newfound legal skills. So I went to be a state prosecutor, helping victims of crime, absolutely fell in love with helping people who've been abused, people who've been burglarized, people who've been assaulted. And, and after a few years there, I realized though that as much as it, I loved helping victims, I was on the back end of the issues and I needed to get to the front. That took me on a journey to United Greater St. Louis. I led as senior VP there and led the division to raise the money. So in four years, four campaigns, led the team to raise 300 million for our Greater St. Louis region. And even after raising all that money, realized we still had so many challenges in our region and I needed to get to the root causes. And that took me on my last stop before I ran for office to lead uh, the nonprofit called Forward through Ferguson. I was the executive director. I was the second executive director. That's the successor nonprofit to the Ferguson Commission after the Michael Brown shooting. And uh, after being there for a bit, realized that many of the issues, not all, but many of the issues we were working on, when you pull the thread back on them, the thread ended at the state level. And, and that's why I'm running to get to the issues at the state level and specifically for secretary of state because that is where the fight is for freedom and democracy in our state what's your understanding of what your job would be as secretary of state and what what would some of your priorities be well the secretary of state has a a a good number of duties it's it's one of those offices that that folks many folks don't know much about because it's it's not as uh, well-known as, say, governor or one of those roles, but it's really quite central to everything that that folks want to see move forward in our state. Because of all the duties that the Secretary of State has, two are paramount in principle. Number one, Secretary of State sets many of the rules and conditions and gives guidance for voting around the state to local election authorities throughout the state and distributes or does not distribute federal monies that come to the state to the various election authorities throughout the state. Number two, the Secretary of State sets the language that voters see when they go to vote for ballot initiatives. Secretary of State sets the language that voters go to see. And we all know that how you language something, how you message it, has everything to do with how people perceive it and whether it succeeds or fails. So very, very powerful post. And think about uh, what's happened in Missouri over the last several years. Many of the positive changes for the people of Missouri have come through the ballot initiative process. The, the things that I'm, I'm keen on uh, getting done for the people of Missouri, the things that are top of mind for Missouri voters all throughout the state, uh, voters in time of pandemic, and really all the time, but particularly in this time of pandemic, and, and we know that this pandemic isn't just gonna go away, you know, just cause it's summertime, it's here. And, and we're working to, to get beyond it, but it's gonna take some time. Voters wanna be able to, to vote without risking their health 
or their life. And so vote by mail is a terrific, a tremendous issue for many Missouri voters across, across the aisle. And so uh, I wanna ensure that voters can, can do that, can, can vote by mail uh, without, without risking their lives or their health. Uh, I, you know, we ought to make voting easier. It's, it's too hard to vote right now in our, in our state and, and in many parts of our country. We ought to have uh, same day registration. Many, uh, you know, you, you ought to be able to register when you, the day you go to vote. We ought to have uh, early voting so that you don't have to vote only on that one day in these few hours. Voting is something that has echoes and ramifications for generations. Why is it that you have just a few hours to do something that's got such importance? So we need to, we need to make voting easier. Uh, these are some of the things we can do. You know, uh, in Colorado, no matter where you are in that state, no matter where, what precinct you're registered voting, you can vote anywhere in the state. Why can't we do that here? We need to bring voting from where it is now, Missouri. It's in the 1800s right now. We need to bring voting into the 21st century, Missouri. I want to talk more about the concept of vote by mail. I want to make sure that we're clear what we're talking about. Are you in favor of sending every registered voter a ballot and then having them send it back by a certain period of time, similar to what happens in Oregon and Washington? Are are you in favor of basically creating a no-excuse absentee system where anybody can request a ballot by mail and send it back for whatever reason? Voting is a, is a time-honored tradition for many families. There are families who, who vote together and, and they enjoy the process. They have relationships with the poll workers. They see the poll workers for local, municipal, state elections. And certainly we want anybody who wants to physically go to a polling location to, do, to, be, to have the freedom and choice to do that. That should still be available. We're not talking about getting rid of that. What we are saying that is if somebody wants to vote by mail, they should be able to request an absentee ballot and be able to vote by mail without a notary. You, you might recall the legislature passed a few weeks ago and the governor signed just a few days ago, a law that would allow limited vote by mail for those 65 and older and for, with, with certain or with certain health conditions. And then uh, they can vote without a notary. And then everyone else can vote by mail, but they would need a notary. Well, you know, that we're, we're glad that something was passed, but, but it didn't go far enough. Because what about the rest of us? I mean, you know, going out during a global pandemic and, and trying to find a, a notary is still uh, not the healthiest thing you can do during a global pandemic. And so we want people who, who we want people to have the choice and the freedom uh, if they want to vote by mail to be able to vote by mail. As I'm uh, looking at this law that was passed, the governor signed, it does have a sunset date of December 2020. Is this something that you would advocate for long term? I, I know that this was done specifically in light of the coronavirus pandemic, but is this something that you feel needs to be statewide regardless of health situations? Democracy, while that legislation does have a sunset date, democracy has no sunset date. And so we ought to be uh, 
draft creating legislation that's that's not just good for now it's, it's good forever and it's good for the long term and uh, we need to ensure that we bring voting into the 21st century voting by mail isn't just something we we should be able to do during a global pandemic it's something we should be able to do all of the time because there are people even during pre-pandemic times even during normal times who have difficulty making it out of their homes because of disability. There are people who live in, in parts of the state where uh, polling places are, are not numerous or so far apart that it's too difficult to go out and vote. And we did the census by mail. Just about every one of us got a letter from the Census Bureau and we were able to get the letter, read it and, and complete our census online. Why can't we do voting by mail? I mean, for crying out loud, you can order a car by mail. Uh, you can, and, and so, so let's make, uh, let's bring voting into the 21st century. And I think this is something we should do all the time, not just during a global pandemic. I want to talk about the notary aspect of the legislation you just talked about, because for our listeners, if you are vulnerable to getting COVID-19, mainly that if you have certain conditions or you're over 65, you can check a box on an absentee ballot and send it back without a notary. If you do not fall into certain specific conditions or you are under the age of 65, you would have to not only get the ballot notarized, but you actually have to mail it back. You can't just like drop it in a box like you can with absentee ballots. Now, proponents of the notary requirement would say the notary requirement is required to prevent fraudulent voting. And while I know people have said that absentee ballot fraud is rare, you could point to situations like the 2016 House race between Bruce Franks and Penny Hubbard, where there was accusations of absentee ballot fraud. So I want you to respond to what proponents of the notary requirement would say that it's needed to prevent situations that I just mentioned. That is an argument that we that you hear a lot. And the, the good thing about the, this issue, the good thing for Missouri about this issue, it is not an issue of first impression. This is not the first time we, we are not uh, we are not uh, leading the country in talking about vote by mail. We look need look no further than Colorado, Washington State, Hawaii, other states. Uh, in fact, there are 37 jurisdictions that already do vote by mail. So we can we have lots of best practices out there, and and in all of these states, voter voter fraud through vote by mail is almost non-existent. I mean, it, it's such it's it's not existent to the point that it's not even it's not even a legitimate uh, rebuttal. And so but there are ways to safeguard vote by mail. And one of the ways you can do that is signature matching, where you could you simply match the signature of the voter with the signature in, in the in the voter files. And, and that's a very simple way. To, now, is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. But it, but it is a way to ensure that the person is who they say they are. Uh, I, many of us have had to get a notary for one reason or the other over our lifetimes. It's, it's not easy. <laughs> you know, it's not like there's a notary on every corner. You know, notary is not, like not like a Walgreens, you know. You can't find one on every corner. And, and even if you do happen to find a notary, you've got to coordinate with them. You've got to make an appointment. You've got to... Uh, you know, go out, meet them there. And it, 
and, and in a global pandemic, the last thing that Missouri voters need to worry about is trying to find a notary, schedule an appointment, leave their house, risk the, expose themselves to, to uh, COVID-19 as they're leaving their home and in, in the, the office of the notary. And, and maybe they're asymptomatic and maybe they're, they're shedding the virus as they're going there. I mean, so, so this is the problem with, with the notary requirement. Uh, and again, even during normal times, even if we were not in a pandemic, it's so difficult for many people to get to a notary. And in some of our less densely populated areas of the state, uh, it's really, it's even more difficult to find a notary. So we, we really don't need the notary requirement to safeguard absentee ballots. There's so many other ways to do it. I want to talk about ballot initiatives, because as you mentioned before, that's another major aspect of being secretary of state. And there have been a lot of Republicans that have sought to change that process, either by requiring more signatures for something to get on the ballot or requiring a higher percentage to pass something specifically in the Missouri Constitution. Uh, what do you make of either one of those things? In our Constitution, our, our federal Constitution, the government that really guides us as a country, we talk about government of the of the people, by the people, and for the people. And if we are to adhere to that ideal, then we ought to give the people voice and choice because this state belongs to the people, not to uh, legislators who think they know better than the people. And when we want to give voice and choice to the people, we ought to make it easiest for the people's voice to be heard, and we ought to honor the people's voice. Uh, when we uh, erect artificial barriers to the people's voice, when we erect roadblocks, then, 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 then legislators and those in, in state elected government are saying they know better than the people, and that's when they, they need to find a different job. Uh, so we, we need to ensure that uh, the ballot initiative process has, has reasonable thresholds so that you don't have you know, just frivolous initiatives, but we need to ensure that it's not, the threshold isn't so high that we're, we're chilling the voice of the people. And I think as it stands, I don't think we need to make it, I, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult right now to get something on the, it's not like you can just walk in and say, hey, I wanna get this on the ballot, it's on the ballot. It's very, very difficult. And it, it's, it's actually quite expensive. So it's already difficult. We already have enough uh, hurdles. We don't need to create any more hurdles. You have to get so many, the signature, uh, the requirement for signatures is so high already. I mean, uh, talking about hundreds of thousands of signatures, you know, so, so I think the, the system, the process could actually be made a little easier. We do not need to, I've heard of proposals to increase the amount that uh, folks who want to get something about would have to pay we don't need to increase that because then we begin to essentially add a poll tax. And, and we know we've already seen the poll taxes end in a bad movie. We don't need to repeat that movie. So I disagree with anyone who wants to make it more difficult for Missourians to exercise their choice and voice through the ballot initiative process. And just to be clear, like you don't think it should be like 60 percent to get something in the Missouri Constitution. You think it should be 50 percent plus one as is. I, I think so. I mean, this is, this is uh, again, this is the people's state, not uh, legislator X or legislator's Y state. 
is Missouri belongs to the people. And if the people want to get something, uh, want to make a change to our constitution, if they want to uh, make us change the statute and the majority of the people speak, then, then we need to honor that voice. On your website, you say ballot initiatives have had the added benefit of keeping voters engaged in the process and leading to higher voter turnout. And as dark money continues to pervade our political system, initiatives help assure that politicians exercise the will of the voters. It's interesting that you mentioned dark money, because if you followed ballot initiatives over the last two to four years, there has been millions of dollars of undisclosed, quote unquote, dark money go into both left-leaning and right-leaning ballot initiatives. And I'm just curious if you think that there's anything that can be done to require groups to disclose the specific sources of money when they can't necessarily hide behind a 501c4 to shield the direct source of the issue they're trying to propel. What, what do you think about that? Well, dark money in, in our state politics has, has long been a problem, and, and we need to root that out. We need to shed more light on on where where campaigns for issues are getting their money from. We need to be as transparent as possible because transparency is what increases voter confidence. It's what increases legitimacy of of ballot initiatives. So so I support transparency, and and I think there, there's opportunity to do that in, in the state for sure. Absolutely. We'll be right back on this episode of Politically Speaking with Democratic Secretary of State nominee Yinka Falati. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Democratic Secretary of State nominee Yinka Falati. I want to talk about the events of the past week plus. There have been protests around Missouri and around the country over the deaths of unarmed African-American men and African-American women in Minneapolis, Louisville, Georgia. And this this is stemming from incidents that have been happening for years, if not decades, about police killing African-Americans in, in sometimes shocking and very public ways. And as somebody who was part of Forward Through Ferguson, which, as you mentioned, was the uh, successor to the Ferguson Commission. I, I, I thought I would give you a little bit of time to reflect on the past week or so. And I want to give you kind of like a few minutes to just say what what you would like to say about about what's happened in America. We seem as a country to be stuck. We seem to not be able to get better to be able to get beyond. And unfortunately, this is not new. I, I penned a piece on, on the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. It was, it was published online by Crooked Media. And I had, the ink hadn't even dried on that piece when, when uh, George, Breonna Taylor, and then George Floyd were both killed and both by police. Uh, and, and unfortunately, this is not new. I mean, in 1991, we all remember Rodney King and how he was beaten senselessly by police. And, and so we seem to be stuck. 
And part of the reason we're stuck is that we haven't taken the lessons and applied them. We've, as a country, awoken when these incidents happen because they're too loud to ignore. And then we debate, or we discuss, and then we kind of fall back asleep. And I'm hoping and praying that does not happen again this time. I'm hoping and praying that the three deaths of uh, close in, in time of Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and, and George Floyd have awakened in America a moment of momentum to make change. We, we, are, we now have a forced opportunity to make change. And when we talk about change, sometimes we also get stuck in conversations that seem to create a dichotomy. Communities of color or police. And you're either for one or you're for the other. And it's a false dichotomy. You can be both for good police officers and for black lives. And to say that black lives matter does not mean that all lives don't matter. But with that movement, and now what so many people even outside of the origins of that movement are saying is that as a country for far too long, we have denigrated black lives to, to second-class citizenship. And that black lives matter uh, and, and black lives matter and are worthy of, of protection, just like all other lives. And we have not done that in this country. And sometimes we also think that, well, what can we do? We don't know what to do. And nothing can be further from the truth. We know exactly what to do. We know what to do because we have this region, our greater St. Louis region has gone through this, unfortunately, in the killing of Michael Brown Jr. in 2014. And out of that came the Ferguson Commission that worked for nearly a year. Uh, that commission was impaneled by then Democratic Governor Jay Nixon. And out of that commission came a beautiful, elegant, and functional report called the Ferguson Commission Report. And that report lays out calls to action that are, act, that are actually actionable. They're not pie in the sky. They are doable, achievable calls to action. 47 signature priority calls to action. And, and if we study that document, it will begin to help us move forward. Uh, in the same year, uh, you might recall that President Obama also in 2014 assembled a commission on and a task force and his task force on 21st century uh, policing. And, and that is also a terrific document. So we know what to do. We know what to do. The challenge is we have not, for the most part, been able to elect the leaders that would help us move forward. And that is why change begins at the ballot box. Because in this country, in many parts of this country, it is so difficult for people to exercise the right to vote. Many people don't, don't opt out of the system. It, it's too hard. They just don't even try. And when we make voting, when we democratize democracy, and we, we give people increased access to the ballot box. We increase polling places. We do same day registration, automatic voter registration when our young people turn 18. 
vote by mail, all these things and more that make it easier for people to exercise their voice. We will see the people rise up and choose leaders they believe will actually help move us forward. Imagine what our country would be like right now if we had a different leader in the White House. Let's pause on that. If we had a different leader in the White House, imagine what could be possible in a moment. Imagine the rhetoric we would not have to be battling against. Imagine how we could have a leader that could unite the country, that could help the country move forward. Imagine that, that's what's possible. Imagine in Missouri, if we did not have a secretary of state that's refusing even during a global pandemic to allow vote by mail. Imagine being able to elect leaders that would move us forward. That's when we begin to make the change. And that's how we begin to, to accelerate change in this country. I'm very hopeful that this moment will be different, that this moment post George Floyd will be a forced opportunity for our country to make the changes in criminal justice reform, in community policing, in, in, in how we, we prosecute these crimes, and, and I, I wanna say this too, this is not simply an issue of police or bad police. Yes, there are bad police, but this is an issue of systemic racism and things that need to change systemically. It's, it's a systems change that needs to occur. Not yes, there are bad police and they need to be rooted out. Those are individual level changes, but you need systemic changes. And all those are more and more are, are discussed at length in the Ferguson Commission report. As Secretary of State, if you were to be elected, how, I mean, we are talking about the issue of systemic racism that you know comes into play in, in policing, housing, education. There are several areas where you know people of color have been advocating for change. So if you were to be elected for, for the position of Secretary of State, what are you proposing in terms of policy that would address these issues? Now, I have to be, I have to be uh, candid in, in, in conceding that the Secretary of State does not get to make a legislation. So the Secretary of State does not get to make statutes. That is, that is done by our state legislature. So I cannot overstate what is possible. But what I can say, the Secretary of State is not just to be a passive observer when our state needs him or her the most. It's not supposed to be a, a passive observer when we're in both the middle of the worst, the most lethal global pandemic since the 1918 flu pandemic, and we're in the middle of uh, the, the most, uh, just this, this moment when we are a country are calling out people in mass all over the country and all over the world are calling out systemic racism. The Secretary of State has an opportunity to use his or her pulpit position and influence to call out these issues in state government and everywhere they may be found throughout the state of Missouri. The Secretary of State has the opportunity to champion this change. The Secretary of State has a voice and an important one. And so as Secretary of State, I would be part of the call I would be part of the voice for, uh, for calls for reform and calls for change everywhere they need to be made in all these areas you talk about, uh, in, in, in systemic racism in housing and transportation and healthcare and education and our economic systems. That's part of what I would be doing as Secretary of State. 
And probably one of the most powerful things any secretary of state can do is to give voice and choice to the people of the state by making it easier for them to exercise their voice through the ballot box and not trying to make it harder as we have in the current secretary of state. When we make it easier for people to exercise their voice, then the people can elect the leaders that can help move us forward, that can elect the leaders, the, the, the local prosecutors, the local mayors, uh, the governor, the, the local, the, the state reps, the legislators, they can elect those people. But when we have voter suppression, as we do now in this state, it's impossible for people to do that. And they get discouraged from even trying to vote. And so there's some, some of the things that I could do with Secretary of State. First, I'll preface this by saying Jason and I are both natives of Illinois, where um, the first African-American president uh, came from. And now we are here in Missouri, where no African-American has ever held a statewide office. So at this time, um, I guess, what, what would that mean? Why is that important to have a person of color elected into a statewide office position? And why are you the person to have that role? Missouri has been a state since 1821. And as you cite, since 1821, never has anyone of color been elected to any of the six statewide executive posts in the state. Next year will be 200 years. It's time. It's time. Uh, the people are, are the, what we are seeing in, in these protests, not just in St. Louis City County and, and Kansas City, but all throughout the state, uh, even in less densely populated areas of the state that we, that we call the rural parts of the state. We're seeing protests all over the state of Missouri. People are saying they want change. They want to see this state be more inclusive. They want to see this state be more representative of her citizens and that her, her citizens are made up of people of all manner of hue, black and white and brown and, and yellow and, and all colors under the rainbow. That Missouri is not monolithic. Missouri is a beautiful tapestry of all kinds of people from all over the world who have chosen to make this great state their home. And so Missouri state government ought to reflect the diversity of her citizenry. And it is time. And I have a, we have a terrific opportunity to make this change now. Uh, this is this year, uh, we believe is the moment. Uh, everything that's happening around us, but also what the current secretary of state has, has failed to do, has failed to, where is he during this pandemic? What is he saying during this pandemic? Where has he been? Where's his voice? And what we're and people are ready for leadership, and and my experiences as an army officer leading uh, overseas and leading here soldiers here in the United States, and my my experience in non uh, nonprofit leadership, uh, I'm ready to lead now, and I'm I'm gonna be honored for the people of Missouri to elect me their next Secretary of State. We'll be having a Republican. Uh incumbent Jay Ashcroft later in the year. But I just want to thank you for kicking off our statewide aspirant series. And and I hope that listeners, once we they get to hear all the statewide candidates talk about why they want to run in their own words and in depth, that they'll be more informed about their choices in November. So thank you so much for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Jacqueline, how can people follow you on Twitter? At Driscoll NPR. And how could people find out more about your campaign, either on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? Uh, they can go to our website, 
www.yinkafality.com. That's Y-I-N-K-A-F-A-L-E-T-I.com. And sign up to join our mailing list and, and would love to have their support for our campaign. Thank you very much. Until next time, so long. 